Greetings, fellow pilgrims. Welcome to our third year of Logosophia magazine, in which we delve deeper into the virtues. This, our ninth issue, is based on fortitude, along with corresponding virtues patience, perseverance, courage, and hope. Continue listening to find personal stories, poetry, a new spin on an old Greek myth, book reviews, and more. New this issue is the column Holy Heroes, the cousin of our regular Faithful Friday blog posts. Please enjoy and let us know what you think. Happy winter! Sarah Lefec, Editor-in-Chief. A note on the audio magazine. Most of the articles within this magazine were read aloud by their respective authors. The remaining articles were read aloud by me or by one of my team. If you like the audio version of our magazine, Check out the visual version to find games, book and movie suggestions, and much more. All rights for this issue as a whole are held by Logosophia magazine. Once published, no submissions may be removed from the issue, just like in any print magazine. All rights for the articles, stories, poems, etc. within this issue are retained by their respective authors, including reprinting rights. If you wish to reprint an article, story, poem, etc., please contact us at editors.logosophia at gmail.com. Thank you. Wanted. Readers and listeners of any faith to interact respectfully with writers and other readers and listeners through book and media suggestions and letters to the editor, as well as comments on logosophiamag.com and social media. Writers of Christian faith to augment the works of our staff. Advertisers and donors to support us financially. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, ESV. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Definitions, provided by Merriam-Webster Dictionary Online. Fortitude. Strength of mind that enables a person to encounter danger or bear pain or adversity with courage. Patience. 1. The ability to wait for a long time without becoming annoyed or upset. 2. The ability to remain calm and not become annoyed when dealing with problems or with difficult people. 3. The ability to give attention to something for a long time without becoming bored or losing interest. Perseverance. Continued effort to do or achieve something despite difficulties, failure, or opposition. The action or condition or instance of persevering. Steadfastness. Courage. Mental or moral strength to venture, persevere, and withstand danger, fear, or difficulty. Hope. To cherish a desire with anticipation. To want something to happen or be. A prayer for fortitude. Dear Jesus, lay your wounded hand upon my weary head and teach me to have courage in the path that I must tread. 
Bless me and bless those whom I love, and give us grace to see these crosses bravely borne by us will keep us close to thee. And if at times a shadow falls in unexpected ways, put your gentle hand in mine and guide me through the days. So bless my people, one and all, with thy protecting grace, and impart to them thy wisdom ere they meet thee face to face. Author Unknown Aristotle's Virtues by Sarah Levesque Aristotle was a great scholar and philosopher, literally lover of wisdom. Like all his works, his Nicomachean Ethics is well regarded to this day and studied by anyone who is serious about the subject, in this case, ethics. As he himself said, ethics is not precise like science. It is, however, just as important, as without ethics, our consciences have nothing with which to guide us. There are many ethical theories, but Aristotle believed in what is now called virtue ethics, which may be understood as a subset of the natural law theory. Aristotle believed that being virtuous was the key to happiness, as happiness is brought about for its own sake, and a virtuous life ought to be lived for its own sake. In addition, living a virtuous life often brings about pleasures such as wealth and honor, which may influence one's happiness. A virtue is a taming of the passions. It is a state of character, concerned with choice, lying in the mean, determined by rational principle. This means that a virtue has to do with one's character, whether it is more inclined to do good or bad, to follow one's passions, which are not always bad, or to rule over them. It is concerned with choice, because each individual must choose for himself or herself whether they are going to be virtuous or not. It lies in the mean, as Aristotle says that most virtues are the mean between extremes. More on that in a minute. Lastly, it is determined by rational principle, which basically means anyone can discover the same idea by using reason, as Aristotle did. Most virtues are found in the mean between the extremes. Aristotle theorized that the overwhelming majority of virtues each had two corresponding vices a vice of deficiency, and a vice of excess. For example, justice is the mean between apathy and vengeance, temperance the mean between greed and unconcern, courage the mean between cowardice and rashness, and prudence the mean between overcautiousness and negligence. These virtues are the four cardinal virtues, as the other virtues depend on having at least one of these four. What does this have to do with the natural law theory? Virtue ethics may be understood as a subset of natural law, a theory embraced by most Christian philosophers and theologians of past ages, as well as many in the present. It is concerned with the nature of things. An inanimate object follows its nature by being immobile without an outside force. A fruit tree follows its nature by taking in sunlight and rain and growing from a seed to a tree when it flowers and bears fruit. A lion follows its nature by preying upon other animals in its area and producing young. As humans, we follow our nature when we use our minds and bodies for the greater good of ourselves and others, using reason to choose good actions over bad and searching for the greatest good, that which is perfect and has no further purpose than itself, namely eternal happiness with God in heaven. Aristotle believed that living a virtuous life was the best thing that a human could do. He also realized that virtue is acquired when the habit of good acts is acquired, as virtuousness 
is simply the habitual choosing of good actions. In addition, Aristotle understood that virtue is something that is purely human, as only humans have the reason necessary to understand the difference between good actions and bad actions and to choose the good. This understanding of Aristotelian ethics is now called virtue ethics, often seen as a subset of the natural law theory. Meditation on My Impatience by Jordan Ellis Christensen Read by Sarah Levesque Oh, my soul, why are you so impatient? Why do you lack in love? Why do you consider yourself to be more significant than others and look only to your own interests? Was the blood of Christ shed only for you and not for the whole world? Why do you then spurn his sacrifice and refuse to show gratitude by bearing the burdens of others? Galatians 6.2 Everyone whom you've refused to sacrifice your time for, you have refused to serve your Lord Jesus. Did he not say, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me? See Matthew 25.40 how then could you be so ungrateful to the one who nourishes you with his very body and blood? Oh, my soul, remember! Remember that impatience is nothing more than pride and selfishness. Remember that those who are slow to wrath are wise, and those who are hasty in spirit exalt folly. Proverbs fourteen twenty nine. Remember that in your baptism you died. Romans 6, 4. You were crucified with Christ. Romans 6.6. 6. Reconcile yourself, therefore, dead to sin. Romans 6.11. It is therefore no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. Galatians 2.20. You are no longer your own because your old stony heart was replaced with a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36.26. O old self, you are dead, and I am alive with Christ. I must needs remember, therefore, that I am to be a living sacrifice and that patience is nothing more than suffering for the sake of others. Christ suffered unmeasurably for me. Can I not, therefore, bear a little suffering for others? All are called to deny themselves and take up their crosses and follow after Jesus. See Matthew sixteen twenty four. O Father in heaven, have mercy on me, thy child by baptism. For these sins of pride, selfishness, and impatience, I beg thee to look upon my Redeemer, thy Son, who has made perfect satisfaction for these iniquities. Forgive me for his sake. I beg thee to strengthen me and to grant me endurance, that I may be like thy Son and be long-suffering for the sake of others. Grant that my patience may grow day by day like a muscle. Grant me the heart and courage to exercise it. All this I ask for thy Son's sake who lives and reigns with thee and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Nada de Turpe Prayer by Teresa of Avila Translated by Jordan Alice Christensen Read by Sarah Levesque Let nothing vex thee, nothing frighten thee. All things are passing. God never changeth. Patience gets all things not swanting to him who possesseth God. God alone sateth. Mita and the Mediterranean Sea Written and narrated by Amelia Nicole A soft scratching, 
echoed down the bright hallway. Mita couldn't remember how she came to be in this empty museum. Nautical art broke up the endless white walls and marble floors. Greek relics and sculptures of sea creatures were encased in glass. She followed the muted sound to an exhibit room with seafoam green walls. Inside, a painter stood with his back to her. His brush scratched the paint onto the canvas as he recreated the oil painting on the wall. The battle between a monster and a hero over the fate of a helpless woman chained to some stone were depicted inside the minimalist frame. Her head pounded. Why does that painting feel so familiar? In this mysterious painter's rendition, Huma was not chained to the stone, but stood defiantly facing the sea monster. What are you painting? Mina whispered, hesitant to break the silence. The painter turned to her and smiled. A mess of golden curls framed his paint-splattered face. Uh, this is my version of the rescue of Andromeda. The Roman poet Ovid described her as a sun-kissed princess, and yet the Greeks depicted Andromeda to suit their image of idealized beauty. I know this place. Mita remembered the taste of salt on her tongue, and the terrible helplessness of her limbs turning numb as the waves dragged her deeper and deeper into the cold, unforgiving depths. I remember drowning there. Someone dived in to save me. In the Mediterranean Sea? Perhaps you visited the coast of Libya. Man fixed her with a pointed gaze. His skin was fair, his shoulders broad, and his jaw square. He looked eerily similar to the hero in both paintings, except he had a paintbrush in the place of a sword and wore a smock instead of a billowing white toga. Who are you? Mita stuttered, trying to cover her surprise. The painter paused. Uh, Pierce. There you are, Mita. I've been waiting for you in the lobby for ten minutes. A familiar woman approached her. She had a dark complexion, much like her own. I'm starving. Uh Oh, I must have lost track of time. Mita allowed the woman to guide her away from the painter. They traversed the grand staircase down into an expansive lobby. Giant sculptures of a whale and an orca hung from the high ceiling. Most noticeable was the blank space where the sculpture should have been. Mita stepped out of the museum and into the sunlight. The metalwork silhouette of a blacksmith stood before the museum. It stretched into the sky and drew her eye to the massive skyscrapers surrounding them. Seattle. That's right. I'm on vacation in Seattle with my friend Danny. She grabbed her phone and did a search for Andromeda. The first link talked about Andromeda Galaxy. The next search result was a page about Andromeda in mythology. So distracted by her phone, Mita didn't see the massive puddle until she stepped in it, filling her shoes with water. But there's not a cloud in sight. Where did this puddle come from? Danny laughed. Always buried in your phone. Look what that got you. A pair of waterlogged shoes. Let's grab a bite to eat across the street. When their day of shopping and sightseeing ended, Mita tumbled into bed. The painting at the Seattle Art Museum filled her thoughts. Loud arguing in the other room made it impossible for her to sleep. How am I supposed to sleep with this racket? I'm going to take a dip in the hotel's pool. Careful not to wake her friend, Mita grabbed her swimsuit and opened the door. The tacky orange and black carpet in the hallway seemed to go on forever. The voices from the other room grew louder. They must have left the door open. She peeked into the room as she walked by. She couldn't help it. Their room looked nothing like her own. A woman faced an unearthly man with her arms crossed, her dark tresses were woven with gold ribbon, and she wore a crown atop her braids. Her dress was embroidered with colorful geometric shapes. Underneath the finery, the queen seemed familiar. 
What in the world? The man wore no crown upon his head, no gold around his neck, but he did not need such things to prove his worth. The man radiated pure power. His hair blew around his face, and a blue haze surrounded him. The woman laughed. Ha! Andromeda is more beautiful than all the nads in the Mediterranean Sea. Andromeda? A drop of cold water trickled down her back, and she shivered. Who are these people? You vain, cruel creature. I gave you a chance, and you will not receive another one. The man stormed towards the door. Mita clambered back into her room before he left. The woman shouted, You cannot have my daughter, no matter how you rage and howl. Mita's heart beat hard in her chest. She grabbed her phone. Okay, I need answers. She tried to pull up the webpage about Andromeda in mythology. Page not found? She searched it up again. Page after page referenced the Andromeda galaxy, but nothing about the name Andromeda in mythology. She even searched for the painting in the online catalog of the Seattle Art Museum, but nothing came up. Sunlight filtered through the blue curtains, and she heard Danny run the shower. How can it be morning already? The smell of seaweed and salt beckoned her to the open balcony. A seagull's cry echoed across the water. The rising sun lit the depths of Elliot's Bay, and a dark shape slithered through the deep. Mita took an involuntary step back. It could have been a whale, or an orca, or anything else that isn't a sea monster. Yeah, coffee. I need coffee. Mita got two mugs and poured pre-ground coffee into the machine. She went to fill up the pot with water. There was a goldfish swimming in the sink. Danny, did you get a fish yesterday? Mita called through the bathroom door, at her wit's end with all this nonsense. What? No, Danny replied from the shower. But when she looked back, the goldfish was gone. Am I really that tired? Never mind, she called back. Over a breakfast of self-serve waffles, she said, I want to go back to the Seattle Art Museum. Danny laughed. I knew you wouldn't be able to keep away when you saw that work of art. Mita almost choked on her bite. Y you know? Sweetheart, no one could mistake the look on your face. Danny winked, and Mita realized she wasn't referring to the painting. You can go to the museum while I shop at the Pike Place Market, and we can meet up afterwards. The metal silhouette of the blacksmith hammered on his anvil before the tan stone and brick museum. Bracing herself, Mita stepped through the doorway. A realistic squid had joined the whale and orca sculpture suspended from the ceiling. Mita took the stairs two steps at a time and tried to ignore the eyes of the squid following her. Without thinking about it, Mita found the painter, but the wall in front of him was bare. Where is your muse? Standing before me, Pierce offered her an impish grin. Back to see my progress? I couldn't stay away, Mita laughed. The woman in the painting had her same dark curly hair and complexion. Pierce gestured to the empty space in the wall. They sent the painting off to another museum. You would think they would have let me know after they agreed to let me use it for my art studies. A webpage disappeared too, Mita said. You seem to be the only one who knows about the myth of Andromeda. Pierce grinned. Andromeda is the princess of Ethiopia. Her story starts when the sea god Poseidon wanted to take her as his bride. When the queen refused, he sent a monster to ravage their kingdom. That's terrifying. Mita pointed to the satchel the hero in the painting held. What's he carrying? Pierce hesitated before he answered in a hushed tone. The head of Medusa, who he had slain only hours before finding Andromeda. Every man who gazes upon Medusa's face is turned to stone. But Athena gave him a polished shield so he could view her reflection to defeat her without looking upon her face. 
A drop of water splashed on her head. The ceiling was warped and discolored from water from the upper story. Uh, how? I better move my canvas. Pierce started to pack up his painting supplies and offered her a cloth to dry her hair. I'd be happy to answer more questions. Mita patted the water out of her hair. Why isn't your Andromeda chained? The original painters depicted Andromeda confronting Cetus without fear. Why would someone who shows no fear be chained to a stone? I didn't think it made any sense. Pierce carefully removed the canvas out into the hallway. Mita pondered the question. Maybe she chose to face it, to save her people. I doubt the Greeks would want to show a woman as a heroine. Exactly, Pierce smiled. And then the hero sees the unequal battle about to take place and decides to take the side of the beautiful princess. Mita stared in mute disbelief as Pierce's clothes morphed into the flowing toga favored by the Greeks. No, 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 no. This can't be real. It has to be another hallucination. Like the goldfish. Don't go look at me like that. Your dress has changed too, Pierce said. Mita now wore a long dress embroidered with geometric patterns. What is happening to me? You aren't gonna believe me. Pierce bit his cheek. You're fighting to remember the truth and bringing bits of your world into this one. My world, Mita parroted. Well, our world. We aren't from this place where legends are dead and gods are myths. Pierce nodded towards the door. If you want to go back to your boring normal life, all you have to do is walk through that door and go home. But if you're willing to face the wonderful and terrifying truth, I can promise you it's far better than anything this world can offer. She could be free of these hallucinations and strange happenings if she left the city. Three steps towards the door, Mita paused. But if I leave, I'll never find out where I'm from or why this is happening to me. Pierce had a sincere expression of concern on his face. No, you will have to live with the fact that you will never know the truth and you can never return home. Distant shouts and a frightening roar reverberated through the museum. Are you sure that you want to see? His tone was full of warning. Mira didn't want to look, but her body refused to follow her wishes. A writhing mass of scales and fins slithered across the docks, laying waste to everything near the great Ferris wheel. The broken remains of a ferry floated in the bay. Mita screamed, but she couldn't drown out the crushing, scraping sound of the monster destroying everything in its path. Her father's baritone cut through the cacophony. The oracle was clear in this matter. If we want to appease the monster, we must sacrifice Andromeda. Sacrifice? Hazarding a glance down the alleyway where his voice came from, Mita saw a room just like the one she had seen in the hotel. The arguing woman shook her head. Without her finery, she finally recognized the woman as her mother. I will not kill our daughter to appease Poseidon. There has to be another way. Poseidon, Poseidon, Poseidon. The name made her head hurt and her stomach roll. The other way was to accept his proposal and bless their marriage, her father grimaced. Her mother gasped. How could you say that? You know what happens to the wives of Poseidon. He thinks just because he has control over the sea, he can have his pick of any woman. He is a god. He is not a god. A god does not steal wives and discard them as he grows tired of them. A god does not send a monster upon his people when he doesn't get his way. A god would not demand the death of my only daughter because he cannot have her. He is not a god. He is not even a man. He is a monster. Someone touched her shoulder, and she whirled around to see it was Pierce. You must choose now. How can I choose to live in a world full of vengeful gods and horrible sea monsters? Mina pushed away from his grasp. A world is so much more than the terrible things. Our world is full of brave heroines and heroes, legendary love, unbreakable bonds, limitless freedom, and indescribable beauty. The earth rumbled and the sea monster burst through the pavement, transforming the road into water in its wake. 
Mita couldn't breathe, much less scream, as a serpent's hot, stinking breath caressed her face, and relentless raves battered and bruised her unprotected body. Leave her alone! Pierce drew a sword with a small, curving blade sprouting from the tip. Mita screamed and sidestepped a swipe of the monster's claws. You're running out of time. You must choose, or Cetus will choose for you. Pierce's voice held a note of panic as he cut and slashed at the sea monster. I, I choose my world, Mita gasped, and the whole world shook. I am Andromeda, and Poseidon wants me dead. Andromeda remembered listening to her mother rebuke the god of the sea for his demand of her hand in marriage. She remembered Poseidon sending the sea monster slithering onto the docks to kill her people. She remembered how it felt to hear her own father admit her death was the only way to stop the monster. The fear she quelled when she snuck out into the stone to face the sea monster, and her relief when she watched Pierce fly through the sky, sword gleaming. Poseidon sent me here! Yes, that's it, Pierce grinned, finally gaining the upper hand against the monster. He plunged a sword through the monster's head. I knew you had it in you, now hold your breath! As the other world melted away, Andromeda tried to ignore how the salt water stung her eyes. Pierce helped her to breach the surface of the sea. They swam for the stone island where the body of the monster lay. The foaming waves of the Mediterranean Sea cleaned away the blue-green blood of the monster. Andromeda pulled herself onto the rocks, heedless of the sharp edges. The same unearthly man from her memories hovered over the water. He was made of sea foam and swirling water. You dare defy a god? Poseidon yelled and sent waves to pull her hero under the shimmering wine-colored water until she couldn't even see his silhouette. Andromeda held fast to the stones. Every part of her body ached. A satchel, dripping with black ichor, tumbled past her, and the head of a monster with snakes for hair spilled forth. She squeezed her eyes shut, waiting for Medusa's head to turn her to stone. The earth stilled, and she took another breath. Opening her eyes, she stared at the ugly face, every man who gazes upon Medusa's face. He is not a god, he's not even a man, he's a monster. She prayed the words her mother had spoken were true, and recovered the gorgon's head. "'You call yourself a god?' Andromeda shouted. She had to make him come to shore. A god wouldn't punish a nation because they refused to give him a bride. A tyrant gives cruelty in the place of mercy, condemns instead of offering another chance, and commands rather than giving others a choice. "'Mercy? Choice? How could your god compare to the power of the god of the seas, horses, and earthquakes?' Poseidon laughed, and the earth rumbled. If my god is so powerless, explain to me how I'm still standing here after all you've done. You sent a monster to kill me, and he lays slain at your feet. You trapped me in a terrible world, and I broke free. Andromeda would not allow him to have power over her any longer. He could not move her, no matter the waves he threw at her, nor how he shifted the earth beneath her feet. Before my father came to Ethiopia from Greece and brought his gods with him, my people knew the difference between true gods and pretenders and you are nothing more than a narcissistic water sprite. Poseidon's face twisted with rage. I will strangle you with my bare hands. I will put you in the sky for a thousand years of torture. No one from your country will dare ever mock me again. The moment his feet touched the stone, Andromeda held the head of the gorgon high. After Poseidon lay with the priestess of Athena in her own temple, she proclaimed, Every man who gazes upon the face of Medusa shall be turned to stone. No! Poseidon stumbled back at the sight of the monstrous head with snakes for hair. Abject fear twisted his face into a hideous expression. The tips of his fingers turned white, 
and his heavy hands fell to his sides. He twitched and convulsed as the stone took his coveting eyes. A cry escaped his lips, only to be silenced as the marble worked its way down his body. You were undone by your own misdeeds. Andromeda watched as the sea he once commanded swallowed the statue of the false god. She covered the gorgon's head with the satchel and searched the water for Pierce. Nothing. She dove in. Every volcanic rock looked like a still body. Every strand of kelp tricked her eyes into seeing waving arms. She went up several times before she finally spotted his white toga. Andromeda struggled to the surface with Pierce's dead weight. Tears obscured her vision as she tried to revive him. Her hero gasped, heaving seawater. What, what happened? Andromeda took a look at the Ikor-soaked satchel. Medusa's gaze only affects men, not women. I used the Gorgon's head to turn that terrible man to stone. Pierce's eyes widened, and he shivered. Wait, if he can die, if he isn't a god, does that make me mortal too? Andromeda's father had not taken the news about Poseidon's demise well. He wanted to banish her to prevent the other gods from punishing them. Her mother scolded him for caring more about a false god than his own daughter. They didn't even notice when she slipped away. Andromeda stood outside Pierce's room and waited for Danny to proclaim her hero fit for travel. She didn't even know what his real name was, and yet... She remembered the way he had looked at her in that world, the way he had fought for her against the monster, Cetus. How he dove into the other world without a second's hesitation to help her save herself. He is fit enough, but he should rest for another few days. Danny sniffed, knowing the hero types never follow a physician's advice very well. Andromeda slipped into the room and watched him pack his things. Is it safe to assume your name isn't Pierce? He laughed. No, no one but my mother calls me that. My full name is Perseus, son of Zeus, but I guess that doesn't mean what it used to. Andromeda rubbed her wrist. I didn't get a chance to thank you for saving me, and my country. You saved my life and defeated a god, I think we can call it even. His expression softened. I shuddered to think of the things I've done without knowing my own mortality. Many people would not have defended me against that monster. Fewer still would have risked their life by entering that terrible world Poseidon sent me to. Andromeda looked out the window and watched her people rebuilding the docks. You're a hero because of your actions and your choices, not who your father is. Perseus straightened from strapping on his winged sandals. Your words touch me, princess. Where will you go? Andromeda longed to ask him to take her on his next adventure. He sheathed his sword and picked up the new satchel holding a special burden. I must save my mother from a terrible king. He sent me to retrieve the Gorgon's head, believing I would fail, so he could have his way with her. You know, we make a good team. Perseus glanced at the open window and offered a shy smile. What do you say? Andromeda embraced him. I say the gods had better prepare, for we are a force to be reckoned with. Holy Heroes, Thomas Beckett, by Ian Wilson Few saints exemplify the virtue of fortitude more than Thomas Beckett. Though much of his earlier life was spent in avarice and corruption, his later years were an expression of piety. Born in London in the year 1118, Beckett was the son of a wealthy wine merchant and enjoyed a thorough ed theological education at the best universities in Western Europe. His first major position was clerk to the Archbishop of Canterbury. 
He eventually rose to the position of archdeacon, the official assistant to the archbishop. He became friends with Henry II, who appointed him as chancellor in 1155. Becket lived large during his years as chancellor. He was known for lavish feasts, expensive clothing, and large estates. He transformed the office from a minor bureaucratic role to a major position within King Henry's court. The king and chancellor became close friends, going on many a hunting trip in the English countryside. Henry II even made Becket the personal tutor to his own son. At the time, Henry II was having a rather tense dispute with the church. The church asserted that crimes, even serious crimes such as theft and rape, involving members of the clergy or church property should be tried by the church. Henry, meanwhile, wished to punish these crimes under British law. There was also a great deal of difference in terms of the punishments for members of the clergy and lay people. Lay people might expect to be fined, mutilated, or even executed, while a priest might simply be defrocked. Wishing to gain an edge over the church, Henry appointed his loyal friend Thomas Becket to Archbishop of Canterbury in 1162, a rather controversial move on his part. Becket seems to have had a complete change of heart during this time. By the next year, he was a completely different man. He sold all his fancy furniture and clothing and developed a passion for good works and study of the scripture. Becket defended the church's right from the king's impositions, angering Henry II and other members of the royal court. As a result, Henry called together a meeting of all the officials of the land to firm up the common laws of Britain. Thomas Becket and the bishops were also in attendance. King Henry made his nobles and officials of the church swear an oath to adhere to and uphold the laws of Britain. Becket too swore this oath, but he later rescinded when Henry II's demands on the church became too much. The archbishop ended up taking refuge in a monastery in France while the king confiscated all his property. In 1170, the Pope declared the king's coronation was invalid, and the king would need to be re-crowned by the legitimate Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Becket. The king and the archbishop reconciled, allowing Becket to return to his episcopal duties unhindered. But this was not to last. Becket began excommunicating the bishops who had not supported him in his dispute with the king. Frustrated with the bishop's obstinacy, the king exclaimed, Will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? Unfortunately, four knights took the king's outburst seriously. These men accosted Becket, demanding that he accompany them to Westminster. When Becket refused, they took Becket's seneschal instead. Not satisfied, the knights returned, confronting Becket in the middle of mass and repeating their demands. Again, Becket refused. The knights drew their swords, prompting the congregation to flee in fear. They took hold of Becket, but the archbishop held fast to a column, 
The men struck Beckett with their weapons, injuring a clerk in the frenzy. Beckett died on December 29, 1170, having forfeited everything for the church he loved. Fortitude, Hope, and Trust by Sarah Levesque Fortitude, the virtue of continuing when the path gets rough, of clinging to hope when everything is dark, trusting the path that you tread is proper. We all go through different seasons in our lives, seasons of easy comfort, seasons of confusion, seasons of fear or anxiety. The trick, though it's more of a grace than a trick, is to keep following Jesus. Let me tell you a little bit about my life as an example. God has never seen fit to leave me in easy comfort for long. It seems he wants me to keep growing and growing, for as soon as I get comfortable with where he's put me, he spins my life again so I have to scramble to readjust, or he buries me like a seed so I have to dig my way out again. I got comfortable in high school and got a part-time job. I graduated and went to college, and when I was comfortable with that, God gave me a magazine to work on. I graduated college, moved up to assistant editor and webmaster at the same time, then got my first full-time job shortly thereafter. I got comfortable with that, and God led me to quit the magazine I worked on and start Logo Sophia magazine. When I was comfortable with how the magazine was running, God gave me a new full-time job that was much harder and more time-consuming than the first. And now I'm comfortable here, wondering, what's next? You could say it takes fortitude to live like this. Sometimes it feels like I'm in that old video game where you must cross a river on logs, avoiding rocks and falling off the edge, crossing at the right time. Only I'm blindfolded and only stepping when Jesus says to. Now I sense the edge coming. I expect God to say, step here now, and yet he is not. So I wait. I hope. I try to stay strong and have fortitude as I blindly trust him, staying where he last told me to be, though it seems that I may lose the game. The blind step must not be taken hastily. Though it is frightening at times, I know he will do what is best for me. I try to follow the advice of a very good friend. Don't complain, strive. And I've learned that St. Francis of Assisi thanked God for everything, even things that most people would complain of. Pain, hardship, discomfort. I'm certainly no St. Francis, but I can say, Jesus, I trust in you. Sometimes it's a statement of belief. Sometimes it's a cry for help, but the trick, or the grace, is to act like the basic robots and do exactly what you're told. Turn left. Go straight. You don't know when the next command will come, so you keep going straight over every obstacle until it does. That's fortitude. It's not easy, but with hope and with trust, it's doable. Not that God wants us to be robots, of course, but as he knows best... His path is the best for each of us to follow. He wants us to choose his path. For some, the journey is not as blind as mine has largely been. Either way, blind or seeing, to follow the path of God with fortitude, perseverance, hope, and trust is what brings us peace and joy. A review of Always with Honor by Piotr Rangel by Matthew Pilgrim Read by Ian Wilson. God is not on the side of might, but right. Pyotr Rangel. The Russian Civil War was one of the most critical events of the 20th century. 
the Russian Empire had stood for centuries, disintegrated, and its people were thrust into a brutal existential fight between the Bolshevist Communist Red Army and the anti-Bolshevist White Army. The Russian Civil War resulted in around 10 million casualties, including both combatants and civilians, and led to the creation of the Soviet Union, a state that would rise to the status of global superpower that dominated world politics for nearly the entirety of its existence. There is no better book with which to study this incredibly tragic and fascinating conflict than the memoirs of the White Army General Pyotr Rangel, always with honor. Baron General Pyotr Rangel was a career military man who served his country with distinction in the Russian-Japanese War, the First World War, and the Russian Civil War. Rangel would eventually inherit the responsibility of leading all white forces in the latter stages of the conflict. Accepting the duty that fate had selected him for, Wrangel made a titanic stand at the Crimean Peninsula until his forces were eventually overwhelmed. When disaster befell his cause, Wrangel organized and successfully led the mass evacuation of the White Army and thousands of Russian civilians to seek refuge abroad from utterly brutal persecution at the hands of the Bolshevists. He dedicated the rest of his life working to assist white Russian emigres around the world and in organizing Russian opposition to the Soviet regime in the hopes that one day the Red Tyranny would be overturned. Always with honor is Rangel's account of the political transformation of Russia during the revolution and his career in the White Army during the subsequent civil war. However, it is important to state that this book will not only be of interest to those who enjoy reading historical material. In addition to being a historical record, Always with Honor offers a portrait of Rangel's personality and thus gives the reader insight into an admirable man, an inspirational leader, whose life was defined by selfless duty and unquestionable integrity of personal character, such a subject of immense value for any reader. It may be beneficial for some readers who are unfamiliar with this historical period to have a brief overview before the book is reviewed further, so that they may have a sense of the time and place that Wrangel lived and writes about in his memoirs. The Russian Revolution and Civil War, like all major historical episodes, are incredibly complex and intricate. They involved a myriad of persons, factions, and concurrent historical events, but the following is the essential information. The revolution unfolded in two phases beginning in 1917. The first phase was called the February Revolution. During this time, a provisional government succeeded the monarchy in the wake of Tsar Nicholas II's abdication of the imperial throne. 
Political turmoil quickly engulfed Russian society, and during the second phase, called the October Revolution, the extremely radical faction of the broader Russian Socialist Party, known as the Bolsheviks, took control of the government through organized insurrections from within ministerial and military positions. The Bolshevists sought to completely deconstruct the whole of Russian civilization and rebuild it in accordance with the ideological principles of the philosopher and economist Karl Marx in order to create a communist society. Their principal leader at this time was Vladimir Lenin, who would be the first head of government for the Soviet Russia. Lenin was also the originator of the political philosophy called Marxist-Leninism, which was the essential foundation of all Bolshevist thought and action. Another important Bolshevist leader of this period was Leon Trotsky, who was one of the primary architects of the October Revolution and the head commander of the Red Military Forces during the Russian Civil War. The Bolshevist Reds were opposed by the White Movement. The White Movement was not as ideologically unified as the Bolshevists, but they were united in their staunch anti-communism. The White Movement was not centralized, though they did have prominent leaders at different stages of the Civil War. The principal white leader at the beginning of the war was Admiral Alexander Kolchak, who held the title of supreme ruler. His seat of power was in Siberia, and he operated in eastern Russia. The white army that operated in the south was predominantly led by General Anton Denikin. But after he failed to retake the city of Moscow from the Reds, the white Russian armed forces and government were reorganized and led by Pyotr Rengel. Wrangel operated out of the city of Sevastopol in Crimea as both the leader of the army and de facto head of state for the government of South Russia until the final evacuation of the white Russians in 1920. Always with Honor can be broadly described as covering Wrangel's experience with revolutionary Russia as a witness to the societal destruction brought by the Bolshevists, and his role in the infighting against them as a military leader and as a statesman. Though the English translation of the book is itself translated from a French edition, none of the authentic elements of Wrangel's personality are lost, nor will the leader find gaps in details or descriptions that are muddled in the translated language. Wrangel's writing is not overly ornamented with flowery prose. His descriptions of campaigns and battles are vivid enough to be highly engaging, but they will not exhaust the reader's mind with endless little details. Readers who have absolutely no familiarity with military terminology may be at somewhat of a loss at first, but in time they can sort themselves out as Wrangel consistently uses straightforward and clear language. A distinguishing characteristic of Always with Honor is that Wrangel 
includes exact descriptions of letters, speeches, and military dispatches throughout the book as they become relevant in the sequence of events. For the historian, this is a wonderful collection of primary sources, but it will further stimulate the, le the reader of any temperament as it peppers Rangel's memoirs with voices that are not always his own. The result is a more comprehensive narrative than if he had merely paraphrased or sparingly quoted from these documents. There is no shortage of thrilling material as Wrangel recounts epic campaigns, soldiers dedicated to the desperate defense of their homeland, and international political intrigue. But when Always with Honor is taken holistically, it transcends the limits of regular historical literature and becomes an instrument that communicates timeless truths about manhood and perseverance in the face of overwhelming adversity. Wrangel distinguishes himself from other white movement leaders by his uncompromising de dedication to right conduct as both a military and political leader. His character is a veritable portrait of virtues that are worthy of contemplation for the Christian. Wrangel's display of fortitude is evident in his reflections on taking control of the white movement in its most desperate hour. While I fully understood the weight of responsibility that I was taking on, while I knew the difficulties in the grim conditions of continuing the struggle, I judged I could not decline the post. I could not promise the army victory. All I could do was to promise it should come out of an almost hopeless position without loss of honor. Page 281. Wrangel's story reveals a man who made the most critical decisions of his life based upon higher ideals relating to the demands of honor and justice, despite any personal hazard. Piotr Wrangel beheld the country's government decay and ultimate collapse. He details the persecutions perpetuated by the Bolshevik regime, the hardships of wartime leadership, and the strain upon human heart in fighting a losing battle. But through it all, Wrangel did not let himself be deterred from fulfilling what he held to be his duty for his country. Indeed, Wrangel makes repeated references to the cross on Calvary as the source of resolve to persevere to the bitter end. What is more, though, is that this spirit of fortitude bore impressive fruit. Wrangel inherited a highly unfavorable position, Yet he accomplished stunning victories, both as a military commander and as a statesman. Though he was opposed by a vastly superior force, Wrangel took his Russian national army on the offensive and brought his soldiers to prodigious victories against the Red Army. When faced with austere conditions and political turmoil within the territory under his administration, Wrangel never lost sight of his ultimate mission the national restoration of Russia. Thus he managed the various political factions within his government and put forward policies that won him the support of the common Russian people, particularly the agrarian peasantry.
A constant strain in Rengel's character is his sense of fortitude, the ability to weather all storms for the sake of duty. This is but a sample of the virtues that can be meditated upon from reading Always with Honor. The book provides a venerable gallery of other personalities that exhibit the same qualities of dedication and fortitude. From the unshakable devotion of Wrangel's wife to the soldiers under his command, to Russian civilians that are mentioned as they become relevant to the events at hand, the reader is exposed to many examples of high virtues that cannot fail to inspire feelings of admiration. Wrangel's candidness with his Christian faith makes it clear that his understanding of forbearance and suffering helped to frame his worldview. This book could be written about for much longer and analyzed in great detail, but for now it is enough to say that Always with Honor is indeed a classic, and the story of Piotr Wrangel and the White Army deserves to be remembered, for they have much to tell us. Controversy Corner Controversy Corner is a section of Logosophia magazine where people of different faith traditions discuss controversial topics in a succinct manner. If you would like to submit a topic for discussion, please let us know. Don't see your denomination represented? Help us fix that. We're always looking for new writers. Disagree with a representative of your denomination? Write in and tell us why in a respectful manner, and we'll publish it in our next magazine under Letters to the Editor. For these and any other questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at editors.logosophia at gmail.com. Celtic Reformed, represented by Thomas Adams, read by Sarah Levesque. The Celtic Reformed view matches that of the Lutheran and Catholic in that true science is merely the pursuit of truth through conjecture based on available evidence. Where some fall into error is when people refuse to take into account the biblical and historical narratives of Earth's history and recreate their own interpretation based on an atheistic bias. When all of science is viewed and interpreted in its proper context in conjunction with Holy Scripture, there is no conflict. Both the Word of God and creation, nature, are his written testimony of his eternal power and Godhead. These only conflict when the interpreter's reasoning is in error. Confessional Reformed, represented by J.C. Ellis, read by Ian Wilson. The Lutheran Church has always seen faith, science, and reason to be harmonious. In this, we are in agreement with the Roman Catholic Church. We reject, though, that there was death before sin, and that the world was created in more than six 24-hour days. As it says on the LCMS website, we teach that God has created heaven and earth, and that in the manner and in the space of time recorded in the Holy Scriptures, especially Genesis 1 and 2, namely, by his almighty creative word, in six days, we reject every doctrine which denies or limits the work of creation as taught in Scripture. In our days, it is denied or limited by those who assert, ostensibly in deference to science, that the world came into existence through a process of evolution, that is, that it has, in immense periods of time, developed more or less of itself. Since no man was present when it pleased God to create the world, we must look 
for a reliable account of creation to God's own record, found in God's own book, the Bible. We accept God's own record with full confidence and confess with Luther's catechism, I believe that God has made me and all creatures. Roman Catholic, represented by Sarah Levesque. The Roman Catholic Church has always stood by faith, science, and reason as three different paths of knowledge that do not contradict each other. There are three windows that look out at the universe that get three different angles, and though what you see out of one window may not be the same as what you see out another window, they all give us information about the truth. I find it interesting that people think that faith and science are opposed to each other, for many if not most of the scientists of the medieval era were Catholic priests or monks, with a handful of nuns and lay people mixed in. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote extensively on the subject, proving again that faith, science, and reason do not contradict unless one of them is misconstrued or overreaches its parameters. Even the scientific theories of evolution and the Big Bang necessarily need that first mover. That being said, the Catholic Church taught that Genesis chapters 1 and 2 are historical up to and beyond the First Vatican Council, 1869-1870. While popes since then have been open to the idea of theistic evolution, no prior teachings have been overturned. Presbyterian Church in America, represented by Joshua David Ling. The Presbyterian Church in America back in the 1970s split out of the larger, back then, PCUSA over issues very close to this. The PCA has always stood upon the infallibility of the scripture and holds to the ancient creeds in regard to its inerrancy. Thus, we have a very clearly put forth understanding of six-day creation and the seventh day where God rested. This means literal 24-hour days. The way that this is reconciled is to let every man be a liar and let God tell the truth. Ken Ham and others have postulated many exp Ken Ham and others have postulated many explanations and examples of why modern dating methods are erroneous, but that is not the main point of this writing. The point is that while there are some within the PCA that hold differing views, the view of the PCA is officially six-day creation and we deal with our brothers who differ through an understanding that there is indeed more being communicated in the Bible than just cold, hard facts. Still, it is my opinion that to err in this leads to serious consequences on down the line in our logic, and the scriptures are very clear. I am American poet Samantha Terrell, and this is my poem, Resurrection. I am wilted flowers, used up coffee grounds. I am a song off-key, a crooked line, day-old bread, an empty fridge. A smudged note, yellowed newspaper. I am rain-soaked clothes, tired feet. I am your cross to bear, your sleepless night. How will you receive me? With denial, cover-up, intrigue, distraction, or worse yet, embrace. Don't settle for me, nor conquer me, for then I'll be less than your best. It's not enough to name your crosses and simply carry them. 
eventually all arrive at Calvary. Will you be bold? Fulfill your work? Be transformed. Be more than you are. Be the one the one made you to be. Hope and Fortitude by Amanda Pizzolatto Branoe Atan Harthad Hope Beyond Endurance A fortitude that took him to places no one else dared to go and carrying something that many had succumbed to, even him. Master Baggins, Frodo of the Nine Fingers, among other names given to him during and after his journey to Mordor, was a model of hope and fortitude, having a particular resilience to the dark, icy tendrils of the ring's influence. While one can argue that the rest of the Fellowship had fortitude, and they would be right, I want to focus on just Frodo, for a number of reasons. One reason is that he is my favorite. But another reason, and perhaps the real reason why he has been on my mind, is that quite a few people seem to insist that Sam is the true hero of the series, even though the whole Fellowship were heroes, and Sam would be among the first to say that Frodo is just as much a hero as any of them. Oddly enough, a lot of people complain about violence in both movies and reality, yet are among the first to hail and remember the heroes who fight with sword and gun. Not that they shouldn't be hailed, they should be honored with pomp and splendor for sure. But we also shouldn't forget those who fight silently, the ones who fight for control over thoughts and words. Those who fight the stealthy and silent evil that worms its way into minds and hearts, corrupting from within. That was Frodo's job, to fight that silent evil, an evil which should be considered more terrifying than any Lovecraftian horror. For if the devil can assume many forms, he is more likely to choose a form that pleases us to destroy us. That too is the true fear brought by Sauron, not his vast armies and his riders, terrifying as they were. No, it was the fact that, in the Silmarillion, he could and did mask his evil intent behind beautiful words and a pleasing visage before destroying everything as soon as he had his way. But that is an article for another time. Frodo Baggins did everything Gandalf told him to do upon discovering the ring Bilbo had left him was indeed the one ring sought by Sauron. Whether it was to leave right away, like in the movie, or to proceed to move to a part of the Shire closer to Bree, like in the book, Frodo did it. He did it to protect his people, to protect the safety they had enjoyed for so long. In the book, there is a section that was not put in the movie, that of the Hobbit's adventures in the Old Forest and their meeting Tom Bombadil and Goldberry. Frodo's sign of fortitude came some time after leaving the safety of Bombadil's house, and the four hobbits were captured by Barrowites. Fellowship of the Ring, Book 1, Chapter 8 Frodo was the first to wake from the Barrowites' spell and was faced with a choice. To leave his friends and escape, or stay and try to save them all. He chose to stay, fading off the Barrowite and calling upon Tom Bombadil, ultimately saving them all. While well, the sequence of events was unable to be shot for the movie, and now many see it as completely unnecessary for the story overall, it was the first time we see Frodo's courage in action. We are also shown the thought process behind it as well, as we get the image of Frodo running free across grassy hills while his friends are still lying cold in the barrow before he makes his decision. But of course, Frodo made the right decision. One could say this was an easy decision, and maybe it was. But it is a decision that comes before a much harder decision, that of taking a malignant piece of jewelry back to its place of making to destroy it.
Once Frodo left the old forest with his friends, he went straight for Bree, where he was to meet Gandalf and go from there, as the ring was now out of the Shire. But, as we all know, that didn't happen, and Frodo had to make another choice, whether or not to trust Strider. But once the man proved he knew the wizard, Frodo chose to trust him and let him guide him to the next step in their journey, Rivendell. Along the way, they were faced with the ring rates, and Frodo's courage was tested again. He put on the ring. In the book, he actually fought the ring rites before the witch king of Agmar stabbed him. In the movie, he resisted the urge to give the ring to the witch king of Agmar before getting stabbed for his refusal to give in and obey their orders. In both versions, it was Strider who saved him, and the ring wraiths were chased away. But as Strider pointed out, it's only for a short time, and he keeps them going on the journey. They did meet the wraiths again, a few days later, not far from where Rivendell stands. In the book, Frodo rode alone to the fort of Brunin upon Gralor Findel's horse, whereas in the movie he was taken there by the Lady Arwim. However, in the movie it seems like the effects of the Blade Shard worked faster than in the book, since book Frodo was still in rather full command of himself when the writers gave chase. Thus he seems stronger in the book than in the movie, but eventually he still was not strong enough to face the writers for long and fainted. He regained consciousness in Rivendell several days later, his wound well on the mend, though it would never fully heal. Elrond noticed how resilient he was to the influence of the ring and was amazed at how far he had come bearing it, as well as amazed at how well he was healing from the wound. So too was Gandalf, but both were reluctant to ask Frodo to carry it any further. Thus, when the others arrived, by happenstance in the book and by summons in the movie, no one outright asked Frodo to do it. He stands and volunteers of his own accord, despite being badly wounded already. He had already come face to face with the enemy's greatest soldiers and had had a taste of the evil, both from the ring and their blade, but chose to continue. Another moment in the books that many point to as proof that Frodo is stronger in the book than the movies is that in the books, Frodo stabbed the foot of the cave troll when Boromir was barricading the door of Moria. In the movie, Aragorn and Boromir barricaded the door before the orcs and the cave troll reached the tomb room, so Frodo didn't get that chance, but he still charged into battle with the rest of them. While yes, he needed to be protected because he was carrying the ring and he needed to get to Mount Doom, that doesn't mean he was weak. A lot of people seem to forget that going on even while in pain requires a strength and courage that is almost supernatural. Boromir noticed it on their journey and Sam saw it get increasingly worse day by day the closer they got to Mordor. Sam only got a brief taste of what Frodo underwent when he bore the ring after Shelob's attack, but it made him more determined to be rid of the thing so Frodo could be free once again. I could go on and on, but I will just mention one more thing about Frodo's fortitude. Forgiveness. He had the courage to choose forgiveness over harm. He showed this with Gollum and nearly won him back with his kindness. He chose forgiveness for Boromir, as he did not tell Faramir about the final moments he shared with Boromir, and instead left the glorious warrior's memory intact in his brother's mind. And in the books, he did this for Saruman too. Naturally, Saruman loathed them for it, for Frodo became a shining light in comparison to him. A light was what Saruman once was, but no longer after succumbing to the will of Sauron. In a way, the feel that Lady Galadriel gifted Frodo was a symbol of himself just like the star Sam saw in the wasteland of Mordor, a light that shone when all others had gone out, even though he too succumbed to the will of the ring. 
Again, this article was not to say that the others had no fortitude or are undeserving of honor, but as a reminder that Frodo had fortitude and deserves honor as well. Each member of the fellowship had their time to shine to show the qualities. Frodo, just like the others, was made of the finest material a person could be made of, and though he didn't always draw his sword, he had a fortitude that saw him through to a desolate land and the destruction of an article that could destroy all life. Like his friends, he is a hero and a hope beyond endurance. Hi, my name is Sarah Levesque from Logo Sophia. And I'm Kara Camo. All right, tell us a little about yourself. Well, I have been writing since I was about 12 years old, actually, and I published my first two books when I was 15. And so I've been writing for about 13, 14 years plus, it seems forever, it seems actually. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I I started out writing mystery, uh, uh, a little bit of sci-fi-esque within that. And I started out writing, so basically think of Nancy Drew meets the Twilight Zone. So that's how I always compare it. That's how I try to tell people what I used to write. I read a lot of like of the Nancy Drew books and Harry Potter. So it's partially where that mm-hmm. mystery and supernatural stuff kind of came into play, I think. <laughs> um, but yeah, I started writing when I was 12, those first two books when I was 15. And I started writing because I was getting bullied a lot at school and a lot of it was from kids and also the teachers and I didn't really have an outlet. Yeah, the teachers too. (laughs) And I didn't have an outlet to express how I was feeling. So I started writing about this character named Amber Oak and she became my alter ego. She was the one who could stand up for herself and stand up to those bullies and everything that was going on. And I found solace in the fictitious character and I guess you could say the rest is history although it really isn't because it's still going I'm still in ways writing about her (laughs) okay and how many books have you written up to this point up to this point I've written and published 10 books at this point yeah (laughs) good for you yes what's your latest book about So my latest book is actually part of a trilogy that I've been working on based off the King Arthur legend. So I always tell people think King Arthur in space. (laughs) And I I love I've always had a passion for the King Arthur legend. And I thought to myself, what hasn't been done? And I'm like, well, I haven't heard of much with King Arthur being in space. So that is the angle that I was going at. And this trilogy is actually part of a larger project that I've been working on, which is a universe. So think of Marvel, the Marvel universe. I was actually heavily inspired by that to do my own universe. So this trilogy is a branch, just like kind of a solar system off the entire universe I'm working on. And it actually sets the stage for the main villains of the whole universe. And so anything that goes wrong is because of them, but their actual story doesn't come until the book after the trilogy. So the second book I just came out with earlier this, um, the earlier in 2021. Nice. Yeah. So uh, you already told us why you started writing originally. So we're going to skip that one. (laughs) Edit that out. (laughs) Um, So how did you come up with the idea for this book specifically? Or this trilogy, I suppose. 
for this book, uh, this trilogy, I actually, again, I wanted to do the King Arthur legend. I knew that was something I've always wanted to write about. And when I first started writing out the plot line for it, it really wasn't working well because I was initially going to have it based in, um, in England, in old timey England, but I'm like, it didn't feel right to me. So I started doing, I had to do a lot of research for this. And a lot of the research came that I found was stemmed in the Celtic, the Celtic, everything Celtic is everything that I could find about King Arthur and the legends about him. So it just so happened that for my honeymoon, my husband and I actually went to Ireland and when we were there for, it was only two weeks, but it felt like forever, which is awesome. And the tour guide, he was so helpful because I told him what I was doing and what the inspiration I was trying to get. So everywhere we would go that he thought would help me, he'd be like, oh, check this place out. Oh, since we have some free time, you might want to turn the corner. There's another location you might want to check out. So everywhere we went was so awesome. And I was still struggling. It wasn't until we hit Galway and uh, my husband and I, we had a break from, we all had a afternoon off to ourselves mm-hmm. and we went down this one very, very long boardwalk. It was the longest one I'd ever seen. And at the very end of it, we turned around and we could see the entire skyline of Galloway. It was so beautiful. And I'm not joking you, a gust of wind just hit me and I knew right then and there, I'm not lying. I knew I had to write about King Arthur and Ireland with the basis of the original story being in Ireland. So that stemmed from, so that whole concept right there mm-hmm. for me was, all right, so the setting, then one of the main settings will be in Ireland. And I thought to myself, hey, let's take it a step further. Let's add the Celtic deities to it. Since we're going to add one thing, let's add the whole, the whole nine yards to it. And it was so exciting because it added, it added a, a unique perspective because a lot, I don't think anybody's really done King Arthur and Celtic deities in that mixture. So I really wanted to add that pizzazz, I guess, <laughs> to my trilogy. So how does that connect to space? So it connects to space because King Arthur was originally from a different planet. He wasn't originally from Ireland. Oh, yeah. There's a new spin. Exactly. So it's really fun. And at the, at the, in the first book, we don't we are just getting introduced to the Celtic legend as we sort of know it. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily all about boom, you're in space. It's, it's more, they actually came to earth centuries and centuries ago because they were trying to escape some, a war that was happening on their planet. So that's how they came here to where they are today. So that was the idea I was going with. And in their planet, their solar system, they have, you have Celtic gods ruling different planets. So yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. And it's really fun. And and it was really difficult to for me to figure out which deity I wanted for which planet because there's a number of different deities for different planets. So I'm like, okay, who do I want to pick? (laughs) (laughs) There's hundreds of deities and I can only have a certain amount of planets here. (laughs) I need to focus. I need to narrow my options down. (laughs) Right. 
Yeah, so. Are all your 10 books part of this series? Or is, aside from those first two, I assume when you were 15? So they're actually separate. So, so the first two books I published when I was 15, they actually are connected to my first science fiction fantasy novel called Memories of Chronosalis, which is the start of this whole universe I created. And what was happening was I was writing about these short stories about Amber Oak up until I was probably 18, 19, probably around that time. And when I was 21, I realized that the ser- that I was actually was writing a series. So from the, when I was a teenager, it was a disconnect. Like I, I was, I, when I first started writing Amber Oak, I didn't realize I was writing a series. Mm-hmm. I thought I was just writing random stories and there was no connection. So when I was in my late teens, I said, okay, well, let's try to make them connect. That did not work at all. (laughs) I was like, I was trying to make something that I had been working on for like five plus years. I'm like, yeah, that's not going to work how I want it to work. So when I was 21, I told my parents, I said, you know what? I'm going to scratch everything and rewrite it. And that's exactly what I did. So I took all of the concepts of what I wanted for Amber Oak and I redid an entire timeline for it. And that's where Memories of Chronosalis came from. And I did write a collection of short stories completely separate from Amber Oak. They were short stories that I came up with on the fly um, around the time that I wrote the first Amber Oak stories around when I was 12 too. Mm-hmm. And so they, they're they their own separate entity, like way off there. <laughs> but yeah, Amber, so like I said, Amber Oak has always been a part of my life in that sense, because I've always been writing about her up until Memories of Chronosalis. And I had a beta reader read that book at one point and she said to me, she's like, you know what, this is going to be a great universe you're building. And I'm, and to be honest with you, when she said that, I'm like, universe, right. I, I'm, I'm creating a, a series. Totally. I really <laughs> wasn't. I had no idea, but she saw the potential and I thought to myself, you know what? She might be onto something. So I decided to branch because I had a bunch of other ideas like before I even thought of the trilogy mm-hmm. and I thought to myself, you know what? I could feasibly make this work. I could start this universe of sorts. Like that girl was saying, I'm like, let's try it. Let's see what will happen. So that's where that kind of idea kind of came about. All right. So how do you go about publishing your books? So for me, I use a company called lulu.com and it is, uh, I, I kind of would call it a sister company that would be compared to Amazon Kindle publishing. Um, Lulu is an older platform though. And it was actually my mom who found Lulu first. In fact, she didn't know I was writing until she happened to pick up a notebook that I had when I was 15. And she's like, you got something, let's do it. I'm like, why? (laughs) Okay. Sure. Mom. She's like, no, 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 you really should. You really should. I'm like, okay, mom, I don't know why, but okay. So I went along with it. And then I, you know, again, I, I fell in love with the publishing process, but Lulu is a lot like Amazon in this, in a way It, it will guide you every step of the way, how to publish, how to set up your for how to format everything. It even offers 
covers that you can use. It offers and helps with getting ISBNs through them. So it's very user-friendly and they have worked very hard to establish themselves as a user-friendly platform. And if you ever have a question, need to get a hold of the people who work for that company, they're so easy to get a hold of. And so it's, I've, I've always thought about like the idea of going to a different platform just because I want to know what the others, the other side looks like, (laughs) but I I felt like I couldn't get it away from Lulu because all of my books are like through them. So in my mind, I'm like, that would be weird to have my books in a different part separated in that sense, because they're all one and they're all part of the same thing. So that's why I've always stuck with Lulu. Okay. So does Lulu like, how do I ask this? <laughs> um, like, do you have your own imprint, I guess is the question, or is that Lulu? That how do you mean imprint? Um, like your own publishing company through them. So I do now. So if you were to get an ISBN through Lulu, that makes Lulu the technical publisher. Although they still call themselves a printing company. They don't qualify themselves as a publisher at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're just a source for the writers to like a distribution is basically what they are. But for, for, let's see. For, so for them, it would be, it would be that, you know, a technical, yes, they would be the publisher, but recently my team and I decided, at least with Memories of Colonel Salas, we started from there on to do, to go through Bakwar, which is where you would get an, just a straight up ISBN and that would make you the publisher. So that's what we started doing. Not that I didn't like the idea of Lulu being the publisher but for me I wanted that full total control be able to say yes this is my work and I published it myself and that's just another title under my belt that I can proudly say yeah yeah I did that I published my own stuff and I'm my own publisher (laughs) there you go yeah so what are you working on now oh boy (laughs) a lot of projects oh yeah Yes. So I obviously am working on the third book of the trilogy, which is taking a little bit of time just because I'm looking at it through the perspective of the main villain of the trilogy. Mm-hmm. And he is a biomechanical machine that's sociopathic by nature. So oh <laughs> that, yeah, it is a very, yeah. It's like of all the things I could write about that would get me stuck, it would be that. <laughs> it's, so from that perspective, it's very difficult to write for me because all my villains up until this point have been very, very psychopathic. So they've been very on the emotional base. But this guy, he's he's strictly business, strictly no emotion at all. So I have to almost think from a robotic standpoint. So it's been a little on the challenging side, I will say, and I, I'm definitely not afraid to admit <laughs> But while I'm working on that, I'm also working with Kalarni Trainer, 
who was a friend of ours. And she and I are working on a project called Book Sisters Productions. And we're taking my original short stories of Amber Oak and we're turning them into screenplays. Oh, I didn't realize that's where they came from. We had um, Killarney on last issue. Mm -hmm. So we talked a little bit about that because I was in the time travelers. Right. Yes. Yes. And we, it was kind of funny because the idea came about when we decided this past summer, we ended up sharing a table together at an artist type of artist thing at a, a local mall by her. So we shared a table and there wasn't a lot of foot traffic. So we got to talking a lot and we had a chance to finally catch up because we haven't had the chance to do that. And I, I don't even know how we got onto the topic, but I hap- I think I happened to mention something about wanting to turn my stuff into to film. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I don't even know what happened and what consisted of the conversation after that, but it just, boom, it just happened. Like magic, like movie magic. Yeah, <laughs> um, and he knows everybody in the movie business on this right. the world. So, I, so I have been working on, I just, as of two days ago, finished, I think it was yesterday or two days ago, something like that. <laughs> I finished my third screenplay. So I'm working on the fourth one right now. And so, yeah. And so we are setting up uh, 2022. It's really hard for me to say that word right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be saying 21 for like the next like five months. Just going to say that right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So for 2022, we are setting up meetings. We're setting up like schedules of when we're going to do some things because we're also doing some films of hers too that we're working with as well. So we're setting up a schedule of when we're going to do these things. So right now we're actually on target, at least from on my end, (laughs) we're on target to for June when we're going to knuckle down and start to work on the Amber Oak pre-production. Mm-hmm. So we are very excited. I've already have an artist working with logos and I already contacted a musician friend of ours to potentially give me a sample for a theme song. And I'm really like stinking excited about that because I've always thought about a theme song and how cool that would be. <laughs> so yeah. yes, we are. So there's a uh, no, no sleep at all. <laughs> Constantly going. I, yeah, I can believe it. Yes. <laughs> so why do you write? I write because I have something to say. I write because I have a story or uh, hundreds of stories within me. And I feel like if I didn't write that I would get so bogged down mentally, I couldn't function. It's, it's it's something hard to explain, but it's something that I love to do, but I also have to do for my own sanity. I I, get it. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I'm mostly a short story person myself, but it's usually the character just won't shut up and I need my life back. <laughs> oh, like I can't, I can totally, I, I can relate. I got several characters like that, that even after I've written about them and their story's done, they're still talking. Ooh. Okay. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> so what helps you to write? Is there music, pets, reading? 
I think for me, I mean, I don't read as nearly as often as I'd like to. Uh, <laughs> I feel like that's true for most of us. <laughs> yes. Um, but for me, I don't often, like, I do listen to music a lot, but not while I'm writing. A lot of times what I do is, believe it or not, I will put on, like, the Discovery Channel and have that as a background noise while I'm writing because I can't write in silence. I've wow. always, I know. I've always had a problem with just straight up silence. I need to have something in the background, even if it's, like, on a really low setting mm-hmm. because it's just that it's like acts as white noise to me. And also I really love watching like, you know, National Geographic and the Discovery Channel, just because I also really love history as well. And histories along with people have almost always inspired me for writing. So usually I'll have that going in the background if, if I'm really, really into writing mode and I tell myself, okay, I'm going to get this chapter done. That's, that's when that will go on. <laughs> okay. Yeah. A little bit different. <laughs> Yes. Um, I can't write that way. I end up making me. I'm a, I like the quiet kind of person, but I will end up humming and I'll just, at some point I'll be like, huh, I've been humming this whole time. I know a lot of, a lot of people prefer the silence. I've always preferred. I mean, I don't mind the silence, but if it's like straight up dead silence, I kind of lose my mind a little bit. (laughs) Hey, to each their own. Right? So what is your advice for writers? Oh, boy. (laughs) I think one of the, I, I, there's a lot of things I could say, but the one thing that comes to mind is keep your old writing. Anything that you wrote when you first started out and you think you look back and you're cringing at it, it's okay. I'm doing (laughs) that right now with my original short stories I wrote when I was 12 it looks like a 12 year old wrote them. Half of them don't even have plots. So half of them I'm having to refix, but keep them because that way you can go back and be like, Hey, this, I can build off of this. Or you can say, well, this is, isn't exactly what I wanted, but it's okay. I can still do something with it. You'll always be able to learn from your writing. And my late grandfather loved, he, one thing he told me was don't forget Amber Oak. And he, he always loved my writing because he could see that I was growing along with Amber Oak. My writing style was growing. My understanding of English vocabulary was growing. Everything was growing. He said, don't forget her. Don't forget where you started. And I think it's also a really good humbling moment because you can see how, where you are right now to where you were and be like, I did grow. I mean, mm-hmm. how I always see it, you're always going to be growing as a writer. You'll always be something new you're learning. And if we keep that in mind, I think it will help us as we keep going throughout life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add? Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, uh, that's a quick question. Um, <laughs> well, Mm. don't settle and what I mean by that is don't just look at your first draft and say oh this is great always do more than one draft I've always been told the bare minimum you should do is at least at the very least three so as I was when I was younger I thought and that was the one mistake that I made 
that I, I didn't know that I was writing a series. I didn't know exactly what I was doing. I was just writing what came to my mind. And for that time it was okay. Mm -hmm. But, and, and I didn't know that I wanted to write for as a career. So at the time it was all right. But then when I started realizing I wanted to do this as a career, I had to change paths. And by doing that, I had to realize I can't just settle for my first or second. I have to, I'm, I'm usually doing at least six, seven, eight drafts. And I'm still not happy with it. Even by the time it goes to my editor and by the time it's published, I'm still not happy with it. Oh my. It's like, I feel like because it is that I can always learn new things that I'm always looking back and being. And so that's why I say don't settle. But at the same time, also, if you're going to start a series, make sure you have it planned out. Mm. <laughs> make sure you know what, even if it's just for yourself, because again, I started writing just for myself. And here I am 15 years later, like, oh, well, that happened. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can't, you, you have to plan it out. I mean, because you don't know where that, that story or that series will take you. It might take you to Hollywood. You never know. So that's why I always tell people to not settle for the first draft and to make sure you have a plan if you are working on an epic series. All right. Yeah. Very nice. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It is well with my soul. Words by Horatio G. Spafford. Music by Philip P. Bliss. Sung by Joshua David Ling. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot Thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul, with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul, with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss 
of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul, with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. For me, be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live. If Jordan above me shall roll, no pang shall be mine, for in death as in life thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul, with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest for my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul, with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my face shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul, with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Musical Musings by Jordan Quigley, read by Sarah Levesque. It is well with my soul. What a well-known song and what a well-known phrase. 
And why shouldn't it be? The melody does not take you anywhere precocious like, say, Great is Thy Faithfulness, or our often-mangled national anthem. The harmony stays fairly ordinary, save one modest case of secondary dominance. In other words, many would have no trouble singing along with this hymn, and even more would find no issue with speaking the six words of the title. Do we mean it when we say it, though? Anxiety shows up on every street corner these days. Many of us find reason to be worried even the best of situations. On that note, I always found the last verse of this song curious. Christ is coming. The clouds are rolled back and the trumpet resounds. This is what we're taught to hope for. This is that for which we are battling through Satan's buffets and sorrows like sea billows. And still the author proclaims that even now, it is well with his soul. Why? Why point out that it is well in times when it ought to be? The truth is, the second coming of Christ will be a terrifying experience. It will literally be the end of the world. Will we be able to stand firm and not wonder what will happen? We don't need to take this extreme of an example to understand that even joyful situations can be overwhelming too. Have we stopped to consider how well our souls are in these times? Perhaps it is as much of a test to our faith to measure the joy and peace of the Lord in our souls in times of bliss as in times of woe. Of course we cry out to our Lord in pain, but do we stop to thank him in times of contentment or in times of excitement and extreme happiness? Do we remember him when all is truly going well with that outside our soul? Maybe there is a lesson in the way the melody of the chorus starts with a drone of sorts on the dominant tone of the scale, the note often used to convey uncertainty. As it walks up the steps towards resolution, the proposed idea becomes a definite statement. What starts as almost a question becomes a bold assertion of faith. Let us also test all situations in this way. Let us always consider the state of our soul in every instance, both challenging and rewarding. Is it truly well with our soul? Do we need to thank God for the wellness that we feel, even in the greatest of triumphs? How can we say we are in absolute wellness until we have acknowledged our Lord and Savior in all things? The Title by John Gund Beginning in guttural sounds and progressing into softness of Papa, my father understood, when called, the significance of his title. I did not see my father's weakness or weights, the burdens of a man who knows the title he bears, a name that may be weightier than the burdens themselves, a crown to be cast in the name of sacrifice and service. I also did not notice him placing his weights on his father that Sunday morning, the same way I did to him after tree cuts and bike crashes. My die-cast truck peeled proverbial rubber across the contractor quads of my papa, who was locked in monastic focus. The asphalt slacks and snow dress shirt, short-sleeved, and paired with a tacky tie that he let me pick, only moderately hid the strength of a man who only raised his voice in laughter and when justice was denied. My father's frame, bent at a 45-degree angle, covered me. His calloused hands clasped in communion and reflection. He contracted his bearded face in concentration. I continued the high-speed car chase around the V of his legs, where I had knelt. 
oblivious to the sacredness of the moment, but happy to be near him. I'm Samantha Terrell, and this is Futilitarianism. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Matthew 6, 21. My eyes burn from reading the injustices and corruption in the news, and my lips are chapped and swollen from speaking necessary truths. The earth is burning, flooding, in all the wrong places. But the wrath and equity of God wears many faces. So my heart swells with rage, then contracts with courage, as my mind tries once again to learn objectivity and patience. We hope you've enjoyed the winter 2022 issue of Logosophia magazine, The Virtue of Fortitude. If you did, consider subscribing, commenting, donating, or writing for our next issue. Tune in for our spring 2022 issue, The Virtue of Prudence. The submissions deadline is April 4th.